0: All right, good morning, everyone. We have a little change of venue here due to uh, the flooding in our Dadake Hall, our teaching hall. Uh, Today, we're back into the text of Martin Chemnitz, his Caridian Ministry, Word, and Sacraments. And we left off, boy, it feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? And we were uh, younger and more attractive, (laughs) springtime of our lives. Uh, back at page 40, Beatrice, what are you laughing at? You don't know. <laughs> just easy. Uh, back at page 40, where we're going to be looking at Holy Scripture. And again, the nature of this text, just to say a word about that once more, is that Chemnitz intends this for pastors so that they are encouraged toward keeping up with their studies and their knowledge of what their job is and what they are to be about. And then also congregations so that they can keep their pastors accountable and know if their pastors have gone astray. So that's the, that's the nature of this text, which is why Chemnitz begins with the ministry. And we've covered that section. And now he moves on to the Word and Sacraments. We're on the Word, and we've just really only seen Chemnitz introduce this. So we're going to pick up with Holy Scripture uh, as soon as we have an invocation in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. So, on page 40, Holy Scripture, Chemnitz begins this section with the following question. Where is that word of God to be looked for? And whence is it to be sought? Are new and special inspirations and revelations to be expected? To these questions he answers. At one time God revealed his word by various ways and means. For sometimes appearing himself to the Holy Fathers, he spoke in their presence. Sometimes through prophets inspired and moved by his spirit. Finally, he spoke to mankind through his Son and the apostles. And, of course, you remember uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In many and various ways of old, God spoke to his people by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. There are some other scriptures listed there to buttress this point, but that is to say that God's mode or way of communicating with his people undergoes a change and a final form, no longer revealing himself in many and various ways, uh, no longer through many and various theophanies, no longer through a burning bush or a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, uh, no longer in a rock okay so how then does he speak to us Um, through his son and when you look to what his son says it's through his apostles and so it's through christ and his apostles and this is the way in which god has spoken to us in finality does that make sense because that's sort of forms the presupposition of uh of scripture and what you know, as we, We're going to develop this idea of sola scriptura, scripture alone. But this is the bedrock of that idea that God has changed the way in which he reveals himself and speaks to his people, now doing so through Christ and his apostles. How do we know what Christ and his apostles say? Through the apostolic scriptures. Make sense? Okay. Continuing on then with Chemnitz but he gave us neither command nor promise to expect that kind of inspirations or revelations. In other words, again, Chemnitz here just stating in his own words what I just did. There's a change. No longer are we to expect those kinds of inspirations or revelations. He continues, Yet for the sake of posterity he saw to it that this word of his first revealed by preaching and confirmed by subsequent miracles, was later put into writing by faithful witnesses. And to that very same word, comprehended in the prophetic and apostolic writings, he bound his church, so that whenever we want to know or show that a teaching is God's word, this should be our axiom. Thus it is written. Thus scripture speaks and testifies. Okay, let's stop there, see if you have any reflections on that opening paragraph. I'm guessing that this is familiar to you and uh, feels comfortable to you, but if it doesn't, here's an opportunity to uh, ask any questions you might have. Yeah, exactly right. Everything is fulfilled through His Son. And of course, our attitude in regard to the Old Testament Scriptures, which we're going to get into uh, more deeply here in a minute, uh, comes via our Lord Himself, where He says in one place, for example, um, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have life, but it is they that testify of Me. Me. Now, when Christ is saying those words, there is no New Testament. There is only what we refer to as the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is a revelation of Christ. In many respects, too, as you get to know and be more familiar with the New Testament, you see that all of its arguments are based in Old Testament scriptures. The more you have an eye for this, the more you'll understand The nature of the New Testament scriptures. Nowhere are they simply saying. Hey. This is a brand new idea. The New Testament scriptures. Are always and ever appealing back. To what is written. Think of all the times. In which our Lord himself says what is written. Or refers back to. Adam or refers back to. Noah or refers back to. Abraham or Moses. Or David. So. It is always, even the New Testament then, in this sense, is in some way, shape, and form a commentary on the Old Testament. The Old Testament revealing Christ, and the New Testament saying, in effect, this is how Christ is revealed. This is what the Old Testament says, and this is how it's fulfilled in this person, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you have presented before you. Does that make sense? So that's the interconnectivity of the two Testaments, um, both entirely Christ-centered. Okay, a hand up here. I don't think we're passing a microphone. Oh, are we? Yes, we are. I'm sorry. I'm in error. Yeah.
1: I don't understand this sentence, but he gave us neither command nor promise to expect that
0: kind of inspiration or revelation. I don't understand. Okay, so, but he, namely God gave us Christians, uh, people of the New Testament era, neither command nor promise to expect that kind, namely the Old Testament kinds of inspirations and revelations. So think of the Old Testament ways in which the word of the Lord comes uh, or um, God speaks through a theophany, and I gave you some examples of those, the burning bush, the pillars, etc., Okay, no longer are we expected, or the angel of the Lord, no longer are we expected that the Lord is going to reveal himself to us in these ways, but rather only through his son and his apostles. Okay, okay so there, there's a shift in terms of how God reveals himself to his people. And you can see this largely, I mean, in, in the same way that a, the, a theophany is God in the midst of some apparently physical manifestation, you, I, I understand. I, I, I don't mean this in a technical way, but think of, think of Yahweh incarnate in the burning bush. Okay, he's the invisible God has wrapped himself in the stuff of visible creation. You see, so why would that come to an end? Because it's completely brought to its telos in the the incarnation, the capital I incarnation of His Son in human flesh. So that's brought to an end. So all of the sort of prefigurements and ways in which God reveals himself in the Old Testament are brought to their telos and completion in the incarnation of his son and in his son's I mean, honestly, in his son's life, because that his, the doings of Christ are the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. All these things are brought to their fullness and fruition. And then that which Christ speaks. And, of course, everything his apostles speak are derivative of, of his own speech. And so that then becomes um, the final revelation of God to man. And it's one of the reasons why we say, um, now in these last days... And that's last days, whether... I mean, we're, we've been in the last days in this sense for 2,000 years, and if the world goes on for another 10,000 years, um, we'd be in the last days the whole time. In what sense last days? There's no further revelation to be had. There's no further development. There's no further climax. This is it until the end. Then the return of Christ. So this, we are at the close of this age. God's not going to shift and say, Aha, there's uh, Jesus 2.0. Or, aha, there's this new Messiah who's coming after this. There is no further revelation. All has been fulfilled in Christ. Now is the salvation of the world. And, of course, that's the mystery of which Paul speaks and articulates in many of his uh, epistles, uh, including that section from uh, Romans that we had in in our Thursday service, our divine service just a moment ago. And that is, You can tell that this is the final revelation of God because it is a universal and global salvation that he has worked in his son. And the message, the revelation of God is going forth not to the Jews and then sort of trickling out through them to the Gentiles, but has gone out full throat, full force to the ends of the earth that salvation is in his son.
1: when we were talking about the eschatology with the uh, Wolf book and the difference between uh, a lot of American Christianity which regards the last days as something yet to come uh, and the difference between that and the Lutheran interpretation of that being that the last days I would guess came when when Jesus came mm-hmm. um, so it seems like in a lot of American Christianity there's an emphasis on uh, I am Making a direct connection with God, and God is speaking to me like maybe like He spoke to His prophets in days of old. Mm-hmm. It seems like there would be a connection there that would be because of the difference in interpretation of what the last days are. Because if they if they believe that the last days began when Jesus came, then they would say, like Paul says here in Hebrews, um, therefore it was complete, and so there's no need for right this direct communication with God that is beyond what Jesus...
0: It's a great point. It's a wonderful point. And again, this is... I, I, I almost i almost um, dislike using the term sola scriptura because everybody assumes they know what it means and it almost has a deadening or blinding effect because you go, oh yeah, I know that. And then you just sort of pass... But... Um, To just sort of take Sola Scripture and assume you don't exactly know what it means would be a much healthier way to proceed. But this is one aspect of it. This is one aspect of why the Reformers, looking at the Scriptures, looking at the history of the Church, say there is no further revelation, personal or private, There is no um, many and various ways in which God reveals himself to us. It's one way in his son in the apostolic scriptures. That's it. That's what's binding. And that's a beautiful freeing thing. And then, yeah, I think your point is very well taken. That because Lutherans are attuned to this and have the proper sense of eschatology then, that precludes this sort of weird, like, oh, I need God to speak to me in a vision, Oh, I'm waiting for God to show up to me, you know, in a burning avocado plant here in Southern California. I mean, you know, it's or whatever it is that we might imagine we think we need or, you know, um, you very frequently. And I'm not trying to be insensitive to people's piety, but it is a misplaced piety, this kind of thing. Like, you know, I prayed to God for a sign and then, um, you know, a butterfly came and landed on my nose. (sighs) Okay, it's just—it's almost a—it's—it's just so far missing the boat of biblical theology of the revelation we have in Christ as to just almost be nonsensical. And the, like, I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know how you're thinking or how to make heads or tails of that. All the revelation we have and need from God and can be sure and certain about is here in his word. Why would we ever depart from his word and go into these other sorts of modes of divination, which is a lot of what that is. Yeah, please.
2: Understanding that, you know, the butterfly on the nose as a sign, you know, God proved that you're there. That's right. wrong. But we're still experiencing answers to our prayers with regard to praying for wisdom and knowledge and guidance. There's coincidences that happen. And so I know we're not supposed to look for those kinds of things, but it's hard to deny when... You have a particular prayer in one instance, and the same scripture pops up in six different places and leads you to some you just became answer. A robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I took over. So, how do we rightly think about? It's not a divine revelation, especially for me, but mm. it's God granting access to answers or wisdom or is that
0: yeah i mean you may have to help me see the tension or contradiction obvious quite obviously god answers prayers and does this kind of thing i i'm not even opposed necessarily to the idea that he sort of condescends to us in our foolishness and says you know okay fine um have a butterfly on your nose okay but again that's that would be a condescension. That would be an exception on the part of God. That would be God doing something extra-ordinary. Um, it's not... And, and again, the more, the more I think you become mature in the faith, the less you need those things. And the more you look a little bit askance at those things, like, well, how would I know the difference between that and coincidence? Um, and am I going to just divinize coincidence? That's a dangerous thing. Uh, so and, wh- and how else could I be led astray so I think that that's really sort of even if God does condescend to us in these ways we should recognize it as such as we mature in the faith and see the s- surety and certainty we have in the revealed word of Christ and his apostles um, and let our consciences and our faith be bound by that and that alone uh, you know that's Maybe that's all I'll say about that. Yeah. Didn't doesn't he address that though? In particular, with the woman at the well,
1: when she asks, you know, about that, and he says, you know, because you have to go to Jerusalem to meet God, and he's telling her, "Hey, no,
0: it's it's coming, and it is, and you're talking to it now." Go ahead if you'd like to try. <laughs>
2: I'm glad we're not getting shocked at the same time.
0: Yeah, 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 I, I mean, I, I, um, I think I see your point that you're making. I mean, in that, that text has a lot to do with her being a Samaritan and her set of beliefs that God would come on Mount Gerizim. And Jesus basically says she's theologically wrong and heretical and says you don't, um, what is his line there? Um, you don't know whom you worship, yeah. we know who we worship. I, I mean, that's a, that's a profound theological piece right there and very helpful, especially in terms of our thinking of, you know, sometimes we, we're likely to get confused, like, well, don't Jews worship the same God as us or don't um, people who worship Allah, which is just a name for God, worship the same one God as us, the same uh, and the answer there is no, or as Jesus very accurately puts it, when you say Allah or when, when a Jew says God, they don't, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, there's a superficial similarity in that you're using maybe the same vocables or something, but there's nothing behind that because do you worship, does a Jew worship the God that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Then they don't worship the same God. Do they worship the God that became flesh on the cross and died? Then they don't worship the same God, you see. And the same would go for anyone who worships Allah when Allah does none of these things, right? Um, So then this revelation of God uh, does come on the Mount of Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, as opposed to Mount Gerizim. And that's the revelation of Christ crucified. Um, The revelation of God's Love and salvation for all humanity. Okay, and then Jesus' point, to which that you bring out, is the days coming when it's not going to be about this particular mount, and it's not going to be about finding him in the temple at Jerusalem. Of course, not on Mount Gerizim either, uh, but rather all people will worship him in spirit and in truth, and that is an enigmatic way of putting forth. Um, this entire theology <clears throat> that the risen Christ is our temple and he's accessible to us whether we're in Africa or the United States or China. You don't have to be on Gerizim or on Moriah in order to have access to him. Okay, So he can be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Um, remember Jesus says uh, "If he, um, the day will come When these stones, the stones of the temple, will be scattered such that there's not one remaining upon another, and then destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it back again. And he's speaking of his body. So he's already prophesying, on the one hand, of the destruction of the physical temple, which takes place, by the way, uh, in 70 AD, and this new temple, namely the temple of his body that is destroyed in three days in, raised again in what sense do we participate in that body and that temple well precisely when he says take eat this is my body we pass through the veil into the holiest of holies which if you did there's the mercy the upon the mercy seat the blood of the lamb is poured so you partake of the body you enter the holiest of holies and partake of the blood That's the imagery that um, the author of Hebrews uses, for example. Okay, so that all has to do, yeah, with the finality and the final revelation of God. Mm -hmm. Please.
1: I know, I read many verses
0: several times in my lifetime, and every time I read the same verse, something new for me Mm. comes out of it. So would it be safe to say that the full revelation has always been present but it's just me learning more about the truth and how to apply it to my life. And that there's wisdom there. That mm-hmm. So now I instead of saying personal revelation, I think, well, it's just I'm, I discovered more mm-hmm. about what the truth really is and how to apply it even more um, to my life. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, I, I don't remember who is responsible for the... I think it's an ancient Chinese proverb that no man steps in the same river twice okay, because the river's constantly moving and changing. Um, the same is true uh, when, in regard to the scriptures, that every time you pick up the scriptures and read them, you're in a different state than you previously were. And so you yourself are a variable. Um, when the scriptures step in you, they're going to make a different impression because you're not the same That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that we know that God's Word is living and active and is described as such. And so that's the other way in which the Scriptures can... And we can find those Scriptures doing many different things. Um, You know, this is kind of... You might want to, like, cuddle up to the Scriptures and have a nice, cozy read. And you open them, and it's the minor prophets pronouncing doom and judgment on everything, right? So um, the scriptures have their own agenda and their own way of speaking to us. It's the living voice of the living God. And, of course, that's uh, taught for us in our liturgy very nicely, where after the reading of the Old Testament scriptures, the epistle, these in particular, but in its own form also the gospel, you have uh, this is the word of the Lord, Thanks be to God. And and again, that's not some sort of like information. Like, hey, just in case you weren't familiar, this is the Bible. That's not the point. The point is to assert that you have just heard the living word of the living God. To which everybody says, thanks be to God. So the liturgical formulation isn't this is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks we know. That's not the responsory. But this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, because we're recognizing that God is the one speaking through the mouth of the sinful reader. Um, It is the living voice of the living God. And so, yeah, that's going to, that's going to, um, so there's both of these dynamics. I mean, we're living and changing. God is living and addressing us in many and various ways through that written word. Um, Maybe the only asterisk I'll put on that is that, you know, if we think that God is saying something to us through his scriptures that actually are contrary to the very words or do violence to the words, then we're not in, now we're not hearing the living voice of the living God. We're engaging in bad reading of scripture. <laughs> what we would call eisegesis rather than exegesis, which is reading in our own thoughts or desires, be they conscious or subconscious as opposed to, that's, that's um, eisegesis, into, reading into the text, versus exegesis, which is saying, what is this text objectively saying? And again, just part, maybe second asterisk there is, what is, this ta- what is this text saying? Who is writing it, and to whom is he writing it? What does it mean there? Now, what can I extrapolate that that means for me, that, That's a, val, a generally valid way of proceeding in, into the scriptures, okay? But sort of this idea of like, okay, um, God's going to say something to me, so I'm just going to flip open my Bible randomly. What does he say? Judas hung himself. Oh, no. What's God mean by that? <laughs> right? So, um, completely bad use of scripture, com- you know, and... I make fun of this, but uh, but maybe in a less crass form, this is a very popular thing. Like, what is God saying to me right now? Oh, maybe in, him, you know, maybe in Jesus barking at the disciples, he's saying I should bark at other people more. You know, that, I mean, that, that's the kind of like eisegesis and bad reading of scripture we don't want to do. So while we say it's the living voice of the living God, and while we say that word is living and active... It, it never ceases to be the concrete word, the concrete letters, the concrete meaning. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Okay, that's enough asterisks on that. then. All right, very thoughtful questions. Thank you very much. Um, let's go on to question 39. Are all things that are sufficient for people as the Word of God for faith and conduct of life contained in the sacred writings? And that is just a really germane question. Are all things that are sufficient for the people as the Word of God for faith and conduct of life contained in the sacred writings? Of course, he cites John 15 15 and Acts 20.27. Let me give you those since they're the foundation of this answer. John 15.15 Jesus says to his disciples no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And then Acts 20.27 also cited and this is I believe that this is St. Paul. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Okay, so with those as the foundation, let's see what Chemnitz has to say. The Holy Spirit, therefore, will not, through prelates of the church or through councils, teach other, new, and different things than those that have been revealed through Christ and proclaimed through the apostles. Okay? And there's the corporate use of the scriptures as opposed to an individualistic use. And I think we do well to pay all the more attention to that corporate sense of the scriptures because we're likely to be less egocentric about it and less idiosyncratic about it if we realize that the scriptures are given to all Christians, to the church as a whole, that we might have everything necessary for faith and the conduct of life. Chemnitz continues, For it is a function of the Holy Spirit to suggest, and as it were, recall to mind the things that Christ said and taught. And this is from John 14, 26, where Christ gives this assurance to his apostles that the Holy Spirit will do this very thing for them. And this is one of the guarantees we have right from the lips of Jesus that the apostolic scriptures are, in fact, going to be breathed out by the Holy Spirit and their certainty guaranteed by Him. So, if you were to go digging around for a biblical proof text, you know, where in the Bible does the Bible say Bible only, or where in the scriptures is it said sola scriptura, this is the place you would go. I mean, once you, re- once you realize that that kind of question ha- takes many forms, and is really kind of a puerile question, like, where in the Scriptures does it say Trinity? Well, it doesn't use the exact word, but it teaches it everywhere. Where does it say Sola Scriptura? Well, it doesn't use the exact word, but if you pay any attention to what it says about the nature of God's revelation and the nature of Scripture, you cannot conclude but otherwise. Okay, so same thing. So Christ assures his... Disciples that the Holy Spirit will recall to their memories all the things that Christ said and taught. And that's the essence then of the New Testament. Continuing on with Chemnitz, and though not all miracles, just as not all discourses of the prophets, Christ and the apostles are individually set forth, yet the Holy Spirit included in Scripture the sum of the whole heavenly doctrine as much as is necessary for the church and suffices for the faith by which believers obtain eternal life. And Paul ascribes two things to Holy Scripture. First, that it can make the man of God, that is, a teacher of the church, for they are called people or men of God, perfect. Okay, so again, just to get through the grammar there, that the Holy Scripture can make the man of God perfect, that is to say, sufficiently equipped for every good work, which is namely, necessarily required to perform the ministry of the church. Okay? Reference to 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17. And just a reminder that Chemnitz is reading that in the technical sense, you know, um, uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles, and as much as they have general truths that apply to all Christians, uh, the nature of Paul's writings in these letters is specific to the office of the holy ministry. So that's why Chemnitz here has in mind <clears throat> the man of God, namely the teacher of the church, and that the scriptures equip him for every good work, which is chiefly the ministry um, of the church. Okay, second, that a believer, here's the other side of the coin, not the man in the office, but a believer, second, that a believer might be made wise unto salvation through faith. And the reference there, um, 2 Timothy 3.15. Since then, we have in Scripture the things that are necessary for salvation and eternal life. Therefore, in matters of faith, it alone is properly sufficient for us. So could someone come and teach something outside of the apostolic scriptures and say, you must believe this on pain of eternal damnation? No. If it was necessary, then Christ would have given it to us. So then, if someone were to assert that, they are binding your conscience apart from the scriptures, right? So if someone were to say something like, well, you know, you need to pray to the saints, and if you don't believe that, you're not in fellowship with the church, you're not in communion with the church, and you probably won't be saved. Our response has to be, well, where in the scriptures is it taught that we must pray to the saints? The answer is it's not. So it's not necessary. And the very fact that someone would make it necessary on pain of excommunication on pain of damnation shows that they're binding consciences where god himself does not bind them does that make sense okay so that's the the doctrinal principle of sola scriptura and why you know again when we look to uh the roman catholic church let's say in particular um we see a church that is binding consciences with all kinds of doctrines that are outside of the scriptures proper. They'll refer to this as tradition, and they'll outright state that the scriptures aren't all that's needed, but rather what the Pope tells you is needed is what's needed. So that would be a major difference between Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism. And by the way, if you're looking for church fathers prior to the 16th century, they're going to land on the side of the Lutherans in this regard. They're going to land on the side of the scriptures being sufficient for the handing down of the faith to be believed by all. So we stand, in this sense, Lutherans are once again the true Catholics, uh, kataholos, according to the whole, and are saying, hey, look, we're not going to demand that Christians believe anything outside of the scriptures, just what God has revealed in them. And anyone who would demand that Christians believe something outside of those is doing something inherently contradictory to them. Um, Where can you see an example of this warning and admonition? Well, you can see an example of it at the very end of Revelation. It's kind of interesting how the Holy Spirit is seen fit in his own way to uh, put that at the end of the canon, at the end of the Bible. But whoever adds to or takes away from this book, the the plagues of this book will fall upon him. Now that's specific to Revelation. It kind of has an interesting way of enfolding the whole canon. But the principle and the point is what's important, namely that we not take away from God's Word or add to God's Word but simply let his word be sufficient. All right, so does Chemnitz's point make sense here in question
1: 39? Yep. Going back to the uh, um, American, that seems like a helpful term, American Christianity, uh, kind of broad, um, that the, the scripture alone is properly sufficient for us makes me think of... Um, the attitude that says, uh, okay, well, you read your Bible, that's good. But unless you are have a d- direct personal relationship with God and talk with God and sort of imagine these this conversation with God that is beyond the Bible, then you're not really doing it. Right. It's sort of...
0: It, yeah, 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 absolutely. And that can be exhaust, exhausting and discouraging as well. Because if you 're just reading your Bible, you get the sense that like unless you 're like deeply moved or having some sort of obvious religious experience i 'm not doing it right or uh, i 'm wasting my time or some such thing you know yeah, I mean we need to we need to trust god 's Word to work um, it 's not to say that we 're not active that we don 't um, take care how we hear and um, make sure that that uh, word of God dwells in us richly that we uh, learn, mark, read inwardly, digest all of those things right but you can certainly see some abuses in American evangelical piety in regard to the word and if you know In in regard in general to the revelation of God in our lives, you know, God puts this on my heart, God shows me this sign. In the scriptures, He says this personal thing to me, this very personal and specific thing to me. I mean, all of these are examples of very popular American evangelical piety, and they're all frankly dead wrong, Uh, and they're all born of soil not native to the scriptures, but of uh, alien anti scriptural theology. And that's, I think, the thing to keep in mind and try to purge ourselves from. I mean, we all kind of live in this context. We all kind of just grow up with the same assumptions. Um, But to have those assumptions challenged by someone like Chemnitz, I think, is really healthy and really great. I mean, even if those assumptions are here um, corporate, that the scriptures are for the church as a whole, not for me as an individual. Me as an individual member of the body of Christ, I am still reading it in the context of a revelation given to the entire body of Christ. So, how egotistical, how egocentric for me to say, okay, um, what is the Almighty saying specifically and uniquely to me here? You know, as as if I'm going to find the answer to you know where I should go to school or whether I should quit my job and find another job or something like that in the scriptures. You're not going to find that. And this is where, again, you know, if you take it to an extreme, it really becomes a kind of divination that people are doing uh, via signs and wonders or this or that um, sort of nebulous thing going on in my heart as I'm reading this text or um, interpreting this or that or the other sign. And... you know, Again, you can just see how, you, how quickly, if you depart from the word properly understood, you end up in a kind of paganism, even if you call it Christianity. Okay, let's go on to question 40. Why did the ancients call Holy Scripture canonical? Chemnitz answers, because there is and ought to be in the church a definite canon, and a single norm or rule. And that's what canon means. I, I think canon comes from the word for read and measurement, like um, what we would say ruler. Uh, and so a definite canon, a single norm or rule, is what the, church, what the scriptures are. So once more from Canons because there is and ought to be in the church a definite canon and a single norm or rule according to which all religion and doctrine ought to be examined, tested, and judged. Therefore, that which does not have foundation in Holy Scripture and cannot be proved by it, and is not in harmony with it, but contrary to it, This we neither can nor ought to set forth and receive as the word of God. So again, it's just worth dwelling on these various aspects. So something which cannot be proved by the scriptures, or something that is not in harmony with the scriptures, certainly something that is contrary to them, These things we neither can nor ought to set forth and receive as the Word of God. Kenwitz continues, but the doctrine that is founded in Holy Scripture, this alone we acknowledge, approve, and receive as true and salutary. And with this judgment and distinction, we read the writings of the Fathers. And within those limits, we also embrace the doctrine rehearsed in the Augsburg Confession. All right, so in a very subtle way, and not using these terms, uh, Chemnitz has delineated for us the distinction between uh, Scripture and tradition. How do we receive those things handed down to us from the Church Fathers? How do we receive those things handed to us in... uh, what used to be called symbols. Those are confessional statements. You can think of the creeds, uh, the apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasian. Um, Or you can think of the Augsburg Confession because that is, in essence, an extended creed or symbol of the Christian faith. Um, And then the Book of Concord would apply in a broader sense as well. How is it that we receive these things? Well, we receive them as a secondary authority, as an authority formed by the one authority which is scripture okay so the latin distinction here that's commonly used is you have the norma normans and the norma normata the norma normans is the norming norm that is scripture is the norm and it norms all other things okay then, in terms of a symbol, a creed, or the Book of Concord as a creed, as a confession, that's the norma normata. It's the normed norm. It's normed by Scripture, but it also serves to norm and regulate how Scripture is properly understood. Okay. So, you know, in a scandal that's ostensibly about Scripture, does the Scripture teach that God is a trinity? a tri one God and three persons. Okay, a creed is going to come along and assert, yes, and we the church have hashed this out on the basis of the scriptures. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three articles, okay? Um, what is that? That is a normed norm, normed by the scriptures, and now it is normative for us, as our as our in our life together as, as the church. Does that make sense? Okay, I'm seeing some eyes rolling around, and so I apologize for that. But it is it is a really important part where you see that we as Christians and we as Lutherans, in specific with the Book of Concord, don't have a Book of Mormon. We don't have a second source of doctrine. There's one source, the Scriptures, and it norms everything else. So we read the Church Fathers, and we read them in light of the scriptures. If they happen to say something that is an addition to the scriptures or changes the scriptures, we leave that out especially if it changes the scriptures, if it's in addition to the scriptures, it may be interesting if they bind consciences and say you have to believe this in order to be in communion with the church, or you have to believe this to not be a heretic, or you have to believe this in order to be saved, then we say, no, we depart from you in that. By the way, the same way then we read the church fathers is the same way we interpret all theologians. It's the same way, frankly, we interpret our pastors as they preach to us insofar as, they, as what they say is the Word of God, adding nothing to it, taking nothing away from it, from their lips is the Word of God. It's indistinguishable. Okay? But if they add their own nonsense, um, you know, to a certain degree we can tolerate that because it might be in harmony with the Scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to be overly critical. We don't have to demand a chapter and verse for everything. Okay, But what if a pastor... Um, living or dead binds our consciences apart from the word of God or takes away something from the word and says no that's not necessary um, when God says it is necessary those would be violations where then you'd look at that man and say hey you're in error here and I am bound to God's word not to what you say Okay, please
2: I think you just answered it with uh, binding of conscience portion of your comments but hypothetical thought experiment if the book of Concord were written in such a way okay I guess my question is when people say you're Lutheran you follow what Luther taught we know that the book of Concord is just a confirmation of what the Bible actually says what could have been written in the book of Concord that would make that incorrect if if luther put his own personal this is my personal piety and this is how you should live your life or mm-hmm. i'm wondering it's so font, it's so narrow it's so so people that don't understand lutheranism think that we follow what luther taught but he didn't do that sure but anyway I, my brain's kind of going in yeah. The well, of, I can it's I can so help. Close. Okay.
0: So um, w- what we have here is a profoundly simple principle, and we always return to that simplicity. It's made very complicated by the controversy of the 16th century. It's made very complicated by the developments, chiefly in the West, by Roman Catholicism. Though you also find it in the East, they're just disconnected from the historical conversation. But you find the church, and and in the West, too, it's especially pernicious because you have the Pope as the so-called vicar of Christ, as the so-called authority of the church, of all pastors everywhere. And he's binding consciences outside of. Okay, That's what makes it complicated. So Satan is always and ever making complicated what God has made simple. Now, our task as pastors, and insofar as we're given to do it as Christians, is to combat that complexity, and that requires some complicated arguments. So, I just talked about the distinction between the norma normans and the norma normata. Okay, Um, Now, one of the things that has been levied at us ever since is the slur that you are Lutherans. And it is a slur. I mean, it would be no different than if the church started saying, well, you're just a Rhodian. You know, who wants to be a Rhodian? Nobody wants to be a Rhodian. Nobody wants to be a Lutheran, okay? Eventually, the name just stuck, and we just owned it. But reluctantly, Luther himself said, perish the thought that anyone would call themselves after my disgusting name okay so this idea this slander of which we commonly hear today is oh you're a lutheran you just follow the man luther it's like first of all we have no subscription now that's the technical term we have no subscription we do not subscribe to luther himself as any authority okay i am not bound in any way as a lutheran pastor to view luther or his writings As an authority per se. All right? Well, then what am I bound to? I'm bound to the Book of Concord. I do subscribe to the Book of Concord. Now, in the Book of Concord are some of Luther's writings. In the Book of Concord are also statements about how Luther is a preeminent teacher, and you ought to listen to much of what he's written, and some specific texts are indeed cited. And so I'm the Book of Concord is not dismissive of Luther, but my subscription as a Lutheran pastor is to the Book of Concord, not to Luther. Does that make sense? And then as Lutherans, that's also the case. Now, that becomes complicated in itself, that nature of that subscription. Subscription is when you say, very and try to put it into plain English, that I believe that this specific creed Accurately reflects what the scriptures teach. That's what, scrip- that's what subscription in the primary sense means. Okay. Now, where does Satan make this complicated? He comes with people who say, well, we're Lutherans too. <laughs> well, in what sense are you Lutherans? Do you subscribe to everything Luther says? No, we're with you. We don't subscribe to everything Luther says. We subscribe to the Book of Concord. Oh, do you now? So you have women pastors and you have open communion and you baptize in the no longer in the name of the father son and holy spirit because that's gendered but in the name of the creator redeemer and sanctifier and all these other aberrations oh but we're lutherans too we subscribe to the book of concord too well what about this part of the book of concord that directly contradicts what you're doing then they say our subscription is quatinous Okay, and the distinction is made between quia and quatinus. Okay, so you have a subscription to the Book of Concord required in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and maybe some other like-minded church bodies. That the subscription to the Book of Concord is a quia subscription, which means because. That's what the Latin quia means. Okay, because. And what that's short form for is this. Because the Lutheran confessions accurately teach the word of God, I subscribe to them. Okay. That's the view of the LCMS and other conservative confessional church bodies. What about something like the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA? They say, well, we subscribe too, to the parts we like. And that's a quatness, Latin short meaning insofar as. We subscribe to the Book of Concord insofar as it reflects the teachings of the Scripture. Well, who determines in what ways it does and doesn't? Who determines the essence of the insofar as? Well, I do. (laughs) The individual. So that's effectively a, a meaningless subscription. Because I can just tell you what I believe and don't believe the scriptures say. Well, then why do you subscribe to it at all? You see? So that's then the difference between confessional Lutheran church bodies and why there's... I mean, this is formally recognized. They uh, it, it, Seminaries and in ordinations in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, the largest numerical church body in America, though that may be changing rapidly as people flee like rats from a sinking ship. Uh, the... The subscription just means, hey, insofar, whatever you think, insofar as you want to pay lip service to it. But as a Lutheran pastor, um, my quia subscription really binds me. I'm saying I will not, as a Lutheran pastor, teach contrary to the Book of Concord and all the documents therein, which, by the way, include the the three ecumenical creeds. Okay, so it doesn't just begin with the Augsburg Confession and then go forward to the formula of Concord with everything in between. But even prior to that, the Apostles, Nicene, and Athanasian Creeds, I'm bound to those things. Um, Quia, because these creeds and confessions accurately teach what the Scriptures teach. Now notice that word that I use, Teach. They accurately teach what the scriptures teach. Do we assert that in every little fact and detail and grammatical point and um, analogy that might be used, are are we saying that these are divinely inspired writings the way the scriptures are divinely inspired? No. We may find various errors of fact, but not errors of teaching. What would be an example of errors of fact, but not errors of teaching? At one place in the Book of Concord, don't ask me where it is. This isn't really a hobby I have. But it says something about, and it was referring to the science of the day. By the way, this isn't some Looney Tunes idea. This was the science. Follow the science. The science of the day was that um, garlic juice will uh, stop magnetism or something like this. And so this is used as an analogy for something else. Well, it turns out that... Garlic juice doesn't have any effect on magnetism. So do, I, so do I have to subscribe to the error of fact that's used to prove a true teaching? No, I don't have to subscribe to that. That's not what subscription means. So we're subscribing to the teaching of the Book of Concord. We're not, we're not saying that the Book of Concord is divinely inspired, where every fact is true. That's a statement we reserve only for the Holy Scriptures, where every statement is true there are all, all the statements of Scripture are factual. We may not understand that or comprehend that, or the quote-unquote science of our day may seem to contradict that, but nonetheless, it's asserted. Um, and that's, So that's a higher level of subscription and a higher level of faithfulness that are required from the Scriptures that aren't required in our subscription to the Book of Concord, even when that subscription is a quia, because, subscription. Okay, So you can see how this all gets rendered complicated, necessary to understand, but complicated only insofar as we're combating the complication that Satan himself inserts. In principle, these things are very straightforward and very simple. And understood um, universally throughout the history of the church. They're as old as the creeds, and the creeds are as old as the scriptures because the scriptures contain the, the first creeds, the proto-creeds. Okay, all right. How are we doing on time? About three minutes left. So maybe we'll simply then just recap. Next week, going into the section that of um, the true ancient Catholic religion or faith, and again, you can see Catholic small, that's what we are as Lutherans, And so we're going to talk about the relationship then uh, of Scripture, this foundation we've laid, to the doctrine uh, taught by the church. And Kenneth is going to go into great detail here. So again, the foundation that's been laid is that God reveals himself to us now in these New Testament days through his son and through his apostles. We note that in the apostolic writings that we call the New Testament Scriptures, we have the teachings of his son and his apostles we also see how those are tied in with the old testament Um, whenever christ is is asked about the old testament he speaks of it as being completely authoritative completely historically true Uh, he does not um, in any way have opinion other than that the old testament scriptures are the word and revelation of god and then as his apostles go forth and write they draw upon those Old Testament Scriptures saying, this is what the Old Testament Scriptures said the Messiah would be and do. This is what Jesus of Nazareth is and does. And that now you understand then how all the Scriptures are Christ-centered and how it's this revelation alone that is binding on us as Christians for salvation. It is the revelation of God. Okay, let's just stop there then and next week um, tackle the bottom of page 41. The Lord be with you.